Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. Rabbi. Last we saw that Sadiq, this righteous person, was arguing with God, contending with God, frustrated by the fact that his promise to the king, that the king and the queen would have a child, a son, made of precious stones had not come to fruition. As he was being brought to the king, he continued to pray, and Rabbi Nachman told us, it didn't work, it wasn't efficacious, it didn't bring about benefit, which we know from the next line is not true. We know that the prayers didn't change reality, they didn't suddenly turn this young man, the prince, who at this point is covered with tzarat, covered with this terrible spiritual skin disease. He wasn't immediately transformed into a person made of precious stones. But there was great benefit in his prayer. Because in the very next line, they told him, they informed him that it was sorcery or witchcraft. Answering the question, who told him? Rabbi Ari Kaplan in his notes indicates that they told him from on high. This was an answer to his prayers. The knowledge of what's going on. Clarity about the situation at hand. But even before that, it's important to remember a principle that was very central and important to Rabbi Nachman's teachings and something that we should carry with us and remember, which is that all prayer benefits. We don't talk about prayer as either working or not working. We talk about prayer, we think about prayer, we relate to prayer as something which is beneficial in and of itself. The act of prayer, the act of expression, the act of opening, the act of connecting, the act of expressing and articulating what it is that we need, what it is that we feel that we are lacking. But even beyond that element of prayer as a practice that can bring catharsis and relief just by doing it, for Rabbi Nachman, there also is benefit in the sense that it is not turned away empty-handed. There is some response from God, which again might not be the kind of response that we think we're looking for. We might be looking for a yes. We might be looking for something to change in the world. And for Rabbi Nachman, that can happen too. As Rabbi Nachman teaches in several places that prayer is above nature and prayer can change nature. But even setting that aside, I believe it's fundamental to the understanding of Rabbi Nachman's approach and Rabbi Nachman's path that he was articulating for his followers to believe that prayer is efficacious and beneficial even if it doesn't bring about a change in nature, even if it doesn't bring about a response that we think we're looking for. And one of the examples that's brought about this is that Moses, when he reached the edge of the land of Israel, and we know that Moshe was not allowed to enter into the land of Israel, he prayed 515 times to enter into the land of Israel, and God said no. 
every time? Does that mean that his prayer was not efficacious? Rather, many people say different explanations about the, the benefits of the prayers that Moshe uttered at that time, even though they didn't bring about the result that he thought he wanted. Some people explain that those prayers that Moshe prayed in order to be able to get into the land of Israel ultimately benefited people throughout Jewish history who longed to reach the land of Israel and were able to, as it were, ride the wave or ride in the wake of Moshe's prayers into the land of Israel. That Moshe wasn't just praying for himself, but he was praying for everyone. He was praying for all of us. That's just one way to look at these these prayers that the tzaddik is praying as he's on his way to the king. And therefore, it's surprising to hear how he thinks, or even the storyteller thinks, that those prayers were not efficacious and were not beneficial. Even though, again, in the next sentence, we're told that they did bring about some benefit. He got the information he needed. He knows now the root. He knows the problem. It's kishuf. Sorcery. And the storyteller tells us, Rabbi Nachman tells us about Tzadik Hanal, this Tzadik. It's so funny for the storyteller to have to tell us that we're referring to this Tzadik, Tzadik Hanal, that particular Tzadik. Of course, we know who we're talking about. We know from the last sentence, these things are not empty. They're worth looking into. I'm not going to explore that particular avenue right now, but worth noting just the same. Rabbi Nachman tells us, Tzadik Hanal Hayagavo Lamala Min Shafim. That tzaddik was above all of the sorcerers. This is a general rule that God, the divine, the master of the universe, stands above all of the lower powers. And kshafim, sorcery, by definition, is accessing and manipulating lower powers. What those lower powers are is a huge conversation and a very interesting one at that to understand different ways that the Jewish tradition understands, different degrees to which the Jewish tradition validates sorcery and magic. Does it actually have power? Is it all illusion? Some, for example, talk about sorcery and magic in the Torah as being a function of manipulating demons, shading. The demons, as it were, have power. And if a person somehow gains control over a demon, then the person can manipulate the demon to do certain things. But... Rabbi Nachman wants us to know that the tzaddik is above, or at least this tzaddik is above all sorcery. This reminds us a little bit of Moshe, of Moses, when he is in Egypt and he is battling against Pharaoh and Pharaoh's magicians. And for the first two plagues, at least, and for some of the later ones, Moshe does the plague and then Pharaoh's sorcerers or necromancers or illusionists are able to in some way replicate that plague. But if you look at the first example, the first instance of that showdown, of that battle between Moshe and his brother Aharon against Pharaoh and Pharaoh's sorcerers and necromancers and magicians, Aharon throws down his staff and the staff turns into a serpent. Pharaoh, as we're told by Midrash and legend, thinks it's kind of funny that's like magic 101 everyone can turn their staff into a snake so he calls his magicians some ad that he calls his kindergarten class of magic or whoever it may be and uh their staves also turn into serpents but then something happens aharon's staff 
devours their staves. That's another way of showing that the tzaddik's power is above the power of magic. It's not susceptible. And yet, here in the story, we see that the tzaddik has not been able to bring about what he thought he was trying to bring about. He wasn't able to make sure his promise was fulfilled. He seems to have been outwitted or outplayed by these magicians. So we see an essential element here, which is that the tzaddik does in fact and will in fact have power above and beyond the power of the sorcerers once he knows that they are sorcery. Before that, he was pretty sure it was God rejecting him. Then he finds out that it is in fact sorcery. And then everything changes. And this tzaddik came to the king and told him it was kishuf and told him it was magic, it was sorcery. And he has more information. And that they had thrown the charm, the talisman, into the water. We know how the tzaddik knows that it's Kishuf because someone told him, I don't know exactly who, God, the angels, something. How did he knew, know that they threw the charm in the water? So there's an idea that the great tzaddikim of old, the members of the high council, the Sanhedrin, the greatest rabbis of their generations, were required to know magic and witchcraft because they had to know how to counteract it. So once the tzaddik starts getting involved with the elements of the story, he can see the contours. He can see it must be that they had thrown the charm into the water, and he tells the king as such. And he also tells the king, And there's no fixing for the son of the king, which, as far as we can tell here, simply means that the son of the king will be cured of his tzarat, will be cured of this skin disease that he has. The tzaddik tells the king that there's no cure for the prince. The only way to fix it is to throw the sorcerer who made the charm, who made the talisman, into the water. The king doesn't think twice. The king says, I'll give you all the sorcerers. I don't even want to take the time to try to figure out who it is. One at a time. Let's just take all the sorcerers. We'll dump them in the water. In order that my son will be healed. The king is obviously fixated on healing his son at all costs. As we know, he's already spent an enormous amount of money and all the gems that will be needed to create this child to begin with. And now he's ready to throw all the sorcerers, etc., in the water. He had, himself had pursued these sorcerers and magicians previously when he was having trouble, when he was trying to figure out what was going on with his son. They were helpful to him. But this king seems to be uh, totally willing to use people who are available to him for the purposes for which he needs them and then to dispose of them quite handily when he's done with them. We wish that he had different feelings about the tzaddik. We wish that he would have noticed by now that the tzaddikim, the two hidden tzaddikim with whom he has had the great, great honor of interacting repeatedly and who have done him great, great service by helping him have a daughter and then helping him have a son. We would hope that 
the king would hold those relationships precious and we would hope that he wouldn't hesitate that he would hesitate to throw the tzaddikim in the water if he had to but we get no indication as such this king is single-minded in his goals of bringing his precious stones child into the world and at this point thank god he doesn't have to do anything to the tzaddik all he has to do is throw the sorcerers and magicians into the water the daughter of the king, the princess, became afraid. She ran to the water to take the charm or the talisman out of the water. Who knows? Is she feeling regret? Does she think maybe she overreacted? There's no real fear of her getting caught. She could certainly deny that this charm had anything to do with her. And yet she runs to get it out. Maybe she suddenly realizes that life and death are at hand here, and that she overreacted, and maybe it won't be so bad to have a brother who happens to have a precious stone under the wound on his finger. Just the same she went to retrieve the charm, because she knew where it was. And she fell into the water. So, essentially, the requirement was met. The person who created the charm, the person who created the kishuf, was thrown or fell into the water, and that ends the power of that charm. And there was a great tumult. There was a great murmuring as it were. Everyone was talking about it. Shabbat melech The princess had fallen into the water. Uva oto and this tzadik came and he told them, whoever them is, the king and queen, the people, that the prince would be healed. It's possible that the tzadik knew that it was the princess who had done it, but he didn't think it was a good idea to reveal that to the king. He's still aware of the king's willingness to throw all kinds of people in the water. It could be that he knew that and also believed that it would develop naturally and that the truth would come out. And he didn't need to be the one who would be the messenger of that information, lest the king in his rage kill the messenger. And he's shown himself willing to dispose of all manner of people when he sees fit. I do want to notice, just before we go further, that nothing is taken out of the water. Everything is being thrown into the water. Things are being added into the water, almost like a great stew is being made, ingredient after ingredient. The charm, the princess. This is certainly commensurate with a certain view of what's happening in the story and in our lives and in the world that nothing can really be undone. Things can be counteracted when something is added. But this is, as it were, a yes and situation. This has happened. The charm has fallen into the water. And now, with the princess falling into the water, the effects of the charm having been placed in the water or submerged in the water will be counteracted. But we don't need the charm to come out. It's a part of it as it were. The charm, 
as we're going to see in a second, is a part of the story. We don't need it to be removed. We don't need it to be undone. We need that to maintain its place at the center of the story as a major factor. This charm thrown under the water, the sister who put it there. But we need something else. We need the sister and her efforts to be submerged in the water as well, to be thrown into the soup, to be thrown into the stew, as it were. But we needed that. Because look, Vinit Rapay, he became healed, this son of the king. Vinit Yabeshat and the skin disease that he had became dry. It dried up. And it fell off and it got peeled off. And all of his skin came off. And he, in fact, was made of precious stones entirely. So we needed that. We needed the charm. We needed the sister's ill will. We needed her aggression to serve the purpose of revealing the fact that this prince was actually made of precious stones because if she hadn't cursed him with his, with his tzarat, it wouldn't have resulted in revealing the precious stones of which he was made. This, in a sense, reminds us of Yosef and his brothers. Yosef is the brother who is envied. He's hated. He's thrown in a pit. He's sent away. And that process of being sent out, of being exiled, of being thrown out of the family is the very thing that brought out and brought about his incredible powers running Pharaoh's kingdom, the power to interpret dreams, other things, self-control. All of those resulted from the fact that his brother, his brothers threw him away and sent him out. We wouldn't want that to be undone. We need that. Of course, there's pain. There are results. Of course, something's going to have to be figured out. Of course, in some kind of modern family situation, someone's going to have to talk to the sister and ideally someone would talk to the king and queen as well and remind them that they shouldn't just ignore the princess, even though they want to have another child. But it's important that the story keeps moving forward and it can't move backward. We need what happens, even the painful parts, to be a part of the process that contributes to the development of the prince. And so he was revealed to be entirely made of precious stones by Yalo Kola Sigulot. He had all of the powers. Shalkolavanim Tavot of all those precious stones. He had all those capacities, all those energies. Which we didn't know until now. Maybe we guessed. Now we know. It did come about. The Tzadik and his prayers, his claims against God were unfounded because God had, in fact, granted the king and queen this son, this prince made of precious stones. It just wasn't as he thought. It didn't go in the smooth, direct, linear way that the Tzadik thought it would go. But now we see. Now we can look back and say this is in fact just. With that, our story ends. I'd like to think everyone lived happily ever after, but it seems like there's some messes to clean up, some family messes. seems like the Tzadik has some reparatory prayers that he needs to offer as well. But thank God we have a new light. At the end of the story, we have a new brilliant being who has all the powers and can hopefully guide his family and his kingdom and his world towards unity, towards love and forgiveness. Amen.